0: Okay, one more time, I'm gonna have you stand. And our text this morning is a doozy. Uh, (laughs) We're in uh, 1 Kings. (laughs) Uh, One of the other MCs told me this morning that uh, better me than them. So uh, we're in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verses 17 to 46. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us. But there was no response. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two Sias of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, and they did it again. Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord He is God. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time, the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. A heavy rain started falling, and the power of the Lord came on Elijah. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Almighty and powerful God, we humbly come before you, aware of what you can do. I pray this morning, that you would do a great and mighty work in our midst. Please use Pastor Kyle, use his words, fill him with the Holy Spirit, and fill us with the Holy Spirit as we listen. It's in your name we pray, amen.
1: Thank you, Mark. Before I begin to aim to expound on this passage, I wanna welcome our brother Hosea um, as a new member of our church. we, uh, we heard his testimony, I don't know, a month or two ago. And we're so grateful for his faith, um, his devotion to Jesus Christ, and his love for his people. Um, as members of God's people, um, by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, in particular here as a local church, um, we commit to worship the Lord. These are our five disciplines here at the church that we commit to do as, as God's people. And these are all from the Bible. This is nothing we made up. But we commit to worship the Lord. Um, together um, as a community, and both individuals as families. We commit to Bible study, to knowing the Word of God, hearing and listening to the Word of God. We commit, thirdly, to praying with each other, um, corporately and individually, um, to respond back to God, to what He has said to us in prayer. We commit to fellowship, to knowing each other um, well, to knowing each other's stories, being an encouragement to each other, and finally we're committed fifthly, to mission, um, to go to the ends of the earth, to fill the world with the gospel message. Amen? And that's what God's um, church is commissioned to do, and that's what we take seriously here. So just welcome, uh, Brother um, Hosea. We love you, uh, man, and it's so good to have you as part of our church. And can we just all pray for him? If you want to stand, did you stand already? Well, stand again. There you go. Um, God, just thank you so much for Hosea. God, thank you for his faith in Jesus Christ. Would you just lead him, bless him and guide him. And thank you thank you for his contribution to what is this um, corner of your kingdom in Warren, Rhode Island. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. So we we read a um, considerable uh, amount of text because I wanted you to get the, the context, the flow of the story and the power of it. I felt like it would be lost if I only put like five or six verses in there. I wanted you to see sort of like the bigger picture of this um, fascinating, uh, maybe for some of you, familiar story in the Old Testament. Uh, We're continuing our series on the cost of discipleship and we're doing this by looking maybe for, uh, of course, today and maybe for the next two Sundays at the prophet Elijah. Um, Next Sunday, we're gonna talk about the cost of discipleship and so, so far, we've kind of all been filleted a bit, right? <laughs> These aren't easy messages to hear. The cost of discipleship is self-sacrificial. It's submitting and surrendering our will to the Lord's. But we're going to see next week um, that the cost of discipleship comes from a God who knows that we are but dust. And sometimes the cost of the call to discipleship is to lay down and sleep. So we're going to see that next week. So um, come back next week if you feel like this message is too hard on you. Um, you're gonna, you'll maybe you'll like next week's a little better. Um, but this series is really a call to discipleship for all of us. Um, sometimes we think that there's a difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. God calls us to be Christians by grace through faith, but that also simultaneously is a call to follow Him. Um, discipleship. Is what God saves us to not what he saves us with you see the difference you see when God calls us to salvation the salvation life includes sacrificing for him following him giving up our wills but giving up your will and sacrificing does not merit our salvation to God our merit the meritorious salvation that we rely on is in Christ but what he calls us um, to the salvation that he calls us to simultaneously, he calls us to discipleship as well. No Christian is exempt from this responsibility and the need to follow Jesus closely. So we turn to this enormous figure in the Old Testament that we read so much about to learn a little bit more about what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called a servant of the Lord Most High, if you noticed. In our text. In the New Testament, we would say that this is a disciple of Jesus. I want to provide for you a little bit of context about who Elijah is and what's happening in the story so that you can fully appreciate what's going on. The Bible opens with the book of Genesis, as many of you know. God creates humanity and he creates them to love him and to enjoy him in his presence in Eden, to fill the earth and to subdue it. The earth is filled with the righteousness of God, and there is an innocence in primal man, in pre-fall. Sin, however, created a curse and a separation from God. Adam and Eve are expelled from his presence that's symbolized in the Garden of Eden. But God, in his love, promises Adam and Eve, even, even in the same breath of the curse, he promises that he would send them a savior through Eve's offspring, through her seed. And their earthly family as we see this promise, extends to Abraham and then this promise extends to Israel, which becomes the nation of Israel. So the earthly family Israel would be God's chosen people to communicate God's law and rule that there is one God, that we've sinned against him and are separate from him, but there is a promise to save. This salvation message would come through the nation and people of Israel that God would provide a savior through Abraham's seed, not just for Israel, but for all nations. Now Israel, as you follow and track their history in the Old Testament, would eventually install kings. They didn't have kings at first when they became a nation. They had judges, they had Moses, different leadership figures like this, but they had no king. Eventually they asked for a king, and these kings were commanded to champion both God's law and God's promises they were to call all the world, all the other nations outside of Israel, to worship the one God, that there is only one God, and to remind them that this God is just, and that though we have violated his justice and sinned against him, and are separate from him, his love will eventually provide a savior and sacrifice for sin. See, this is the story of scripture in a few sentences for you. Now this promise to send a sacrifice for sin in the seed of Eve was illustrated in a sacrificial system in a place called the temple where they would sacrifice animals and those animals would point towards a better more ultimate sacrifice which would be the Messiah, the promised one, a person, the king of kings. So the sheep were never intended, the goats and cows, these were never intended to to expiate or to remove sin, they were just a sign pointing to the one who would. Does that make sense? This savior of nations. These kings were supposed to honor this system to point to the one true God of Israel, to worship him only and to trust in the coming Messiah. Only a great many of kings of the kings of Israel loved this world, and worshipped foreign gods more than they did Yahweh. As a matter of fact, most of the Old Testament is about the kingly rule's dysfunction and the prophetic call to repentance. A vast majority of of the Old Testament is about Old Testament kings of Israel and the prophets that warned them. Many of these kings loved this world, worshipped foreign gods. Ahab was probably the worst. And Ahab is the king of our, that is illustrated in our text. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were among the worst rulers of Israel in a long, long line of dysfunction. They rejected Yahweh. They worshipped the false god Baal, as you saw They changed the capital of Assyria from Jerusalem to Samaria. They erected a temple to Baal. They tore down the altars to Yahweh that were supposed to symbolize the sacrifice of the coming Savior, tore them down, destroyed them. They attempted to kill and murder all the prophets of Yahweh as well. And they made the worship of Baal the national religion of Israel. Could you imagine? This is Ahab and Jezebel's legacy in the story and narrative of Scripture. And that's when Elijah enters the Bible story, the narrative of scripture. He just shows up out of the blue. We have no idea who he is. This is the first time he's mentioned in all the Bible, and it is his first appearance. We're not even told that he's a prophet or anyone with authority. He simply enters the narrative in chapter 17, which we didn't read, with these words. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, imagine the guts on this guy. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my king. Mike drop, walks away, disappears for three years. No rain. He goes into hiding for three years, and the text that we, re- that we just read, that Mark read so wonderfully, is... is is Elijah returning after a three-year drought to Ahab. He comes out of hiding. And his faith and actions, I think, teach us a lot about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a servant of the Lord. And friends, if you are brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the life that God has called us to. And if you're not there yet, I pray at the very least, at the end of this sermon and at the end of this service, God will burn a fire in your heart to want to begin the wonderful adventure of discipleship, the life of following Christ. So, let's learn from Elijah what a disciple is. And I like this first one. I think Pat might too. The first thing, I shouldn't have said that, the first thing a disciple is, is a troublemaker, a trouble. (laughs) Ahab, verse 16, Ahab went to meet Elijah, and when he, that is Ahab, saw Elijah, he said, oh, the troublemaker, you troubler of Israel, you've returned. Welcome back, where's the rain? Friends, followers of Jesus Christ, troublemakers. They are. Now I'm going to explain what I mean by that. It doesn't mean you, you know, take candy from little kids, right? It's not that kind of trouble that we cause. And the kind of trouble that we cause is not trouble to some, to some it is life, and to others it is death. Paul talks about this in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, for we are to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved, but not those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. There's another translation that says, for some Christians, disciples of Jesus, are the stench of death. Troublemakers. A reminder That sin is a problem, separates us from God and without repentant faith in Jesus Christ we will forever be separated from him. And that it's not everyone else's fault but ours. It's actually our responsibility. The stench of death. Oh, how troubling. Now some Christians I know are obnoxious and they shouldn't be. We're not talking about that kind of troublemaking. Christians can be judgmental. At times, Christians can enforce issues that are of maybe little significance. They can be legalistic. They can make the Christian life impossibly heavy. Sometimes I've done this to myself, I've done it to others, and I've seen others do it to me. Friends, just because you're a troublemaker doesn't mean you're a good disciple, so please don't get me wrong. (laughs) One professor of mine I I had at Gordon Conwell said this, if everyone hates you, you're probably just obnoxious. But if no one hates you, you're probably a coward. Elijah was called a troublemaker by Ahab, not because he would crush little kids' sandcastles, but because he shut off the rain. And why did he shut off the rain? Not because he wanted to cause a problem in Israel. He wanted Israel to see that there was one God in Israel. And that was the way he was to do it. He was the voice of truth defending the name of Yahweh and fighting for the heart, life, and soul of Israel. And sometimes that comes the hard way. Sometimes we learn that lesson with trouble and with difficulty and with loss. He typified that saying, faithful are the wounds of a friend. He didn't remain silent to 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 preserve his comfort. He didn't remain silent to secure some kind of noble position in Israel, or so that people would like him. He cared about Israel and about the Lord too much to remain silent. So he spoke the truth out of love for the Lord and love for his people. Friends, disciples of Jesus are troublemakers. But they're defenders too. They're, tr- they're, they're troublemakers because they're defending something. They're defenders. I have not made trouble for Israel. This kind of <laughs> reminds me a little bit of like, like little kids. You know, I'm not a jerk. You're a jerk. Right? But it's, I think it's more mature than that for yeah. Elijah. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. He's just brutally honest. He is not, he is not um, pulling punches, right? He reminds me a little, little bit of John the Baptist when he went up to Herod and said, hey, Herod, you're living in sin. God's going to judge you, right? Because he was living in sexual sin. And he didn't care that, that he would throw him in prison for it and cut his head off for it. That's what happened to John the Baptist. And why? why? Was he trying to be a jerk to Herod? Was he trying to be judgmental? No, he loved Herod. He said, Herod, there's life. There's forgiveness. Come to the Lord. Stop pretending. Stop living in sin. So, so disciples are defenders. Elijah would not stand for the profaning of the name of the only God Yahweh by pretending like a fake God is actually God. He wasn't. Baal is not God. Your money is not God. Your parents are not God. Your children are not God. Only the Lord God. He is Lord. He owns this world. He owns you. He is just and righteous. We owe him everything and we've given him nothing. We've sinned against him. And then, when he's upset with our sin and does something about it, we have the nerve to be angry at God for being just. Isn't that true? How dare, how dare I be a sinner? What? Really? Oh, do we, are we listening to ourselves? You see, friends, do we really want a God who's not just? A God who just doesn't mind if we just waste everyone in the room? A God who doesn't care about genocide and about abortion? A God who doesn't care about sex trafficking, that isn't just, about lying, about all the stuff that we we do and promote on a daily basis on what what we might call a small on a smaller scale, a smaller level? Oh, friends, we don't want a God who's not just. We, want a, we definitely want a God who's, who's just. We just. We just don't want a God who's just with us. All right? But there is good news about this just God because he's a savior, and I'll get to that in a second. Okay? All right, where was I? He's about... Uh, um, Elijah cares deeply for the name of Yahweh, but he also cares deeply for those people around him. He is about to demonstrate that Baal is fake, And that Yahweh is the only God. And and what does he do when he's about to prove this point? He doesn't do it in a closet. He doesn't do it in secret or in hiding. It says this in verse 19. Summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. What's he doing? He's building a crowd. Right? He is saying everyone from all over Israel, this is the new king that follows Baal. I'm one man. I'm gonna start a contest, and I want you to see it, right? Why does he want so many people to watch this sort of contest? We learn it in the prayer that Mark prayed from the text. He says, answer me, Lord, so that these people will know that you are God. You see, he was a troublemaker because he wanted the people to know what they were doing was wrong and that they would have the opportunity to go back to the Lord and have their hearts renewed and saved. So for for Elijah, it just wasn't okay that everyone around him didn't know that the Lord was God. Oh, and friends, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, it shouldn't be okay with us that so many around us do not know that the Lord, he is God. That's why we're here. That's the light that should be shining out to our school and to our police departments and to our neighbors and to our coworkers. We're not here just for us to heal from some bad thing that happened to us. We're here for that reason too, but God has made us lights, right? So disciples are troublemakers, they are defenders, and they don't waver. Uh, uh, Elijah is about to preach one of the shortest sermons in the Bible and you're probably wishing that that this was one of them too but sorry how longer how long he says will you waver between two opinions if the Lord is God follow him but if Baal is God follow him you can't have both pick one Friends, we need to ask ourselves the same question if we're disciples, how long will we waver between God and money, between God and sex, between God and power, God and comfort? Are we disciples of Jesus Christ or are we disciples of this world? Which is it? How long will you waver? How long, he asks. God isn't a trick that we use to get ourselves out of a jam. He is our life and our breath. You know that Baal was the weather, God? Did you know that? What, what had just stopped happening for three years? It stopped raining. Oh, so Elijah said, I want you to, God, I want you to shut off the rain I want you to shut that off, because Baal is supposed to be, like, the guy for that, right? So, for three years, all of Israel is rubbing the Baal belly. Maybe he'll fix this for us. He's supposed to do this for us, right? Friends, God isn't a trick to get us out of a jam. We don't worship him when it's convenient, and then, you know, when when our problem is solved, we just go back to worshiping our money or our relationships, There's only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man. We follow him. We don't, we don't waver. Disciples don't waver. And when we do, I know this sounds hard. It sounds tough. I'm being tough on me too, please. Please know this. When we do, because you will and I will, we don't make, make excuses. We repent. Right? Disciples are troublemakers, defenders. They don't waver. Oh, and this one's good. They make matters worse. Okay, watch this. Elijah challenges these prophets of Baal to a contest. Baal's supposed to be the god of rain. Okay. So he challenges them to a contest. And by the way, if he loses, he's in big trouble. But Elijah sets the terms of the challenge. And he makes this challenge seemingly very easy for them and very difficult for him. Let me explain to you why. First of all, he says, let's do this on Mount Carmel. You say, that sounds like a yummy mount. (laughs) Not that kind of Carmel. He says, let's do this on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel was the traditional site of the worship of Baal. So he said, okay, I'm gonna give you guys home field advantage, right? He doesn't say, let's go to Mount Sinai where Moses got the 10 commandments, right? He said, we're going to Carmel. Your God is so great, we're going to go on his mountain. The second thing we notice is that he was outnumbered 850 to 1. Did you see this? Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, I ain't a math whiz, but 450 plus 400 is 850. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now some commentators have suggested that maybe Isaiah was feeling a little bit insecure because there were more prophets in Israel. I don't think that's the case. I do think we see his insecurity later but I don't think it's demonstrated here. I think what he's saying is on this mountain and in this moment I am the only prophet of Yahweh and there are 850 of you. Not really a fair fight, right? So he's making this difficult. He's making matters worse. Elijah III establishes the rules of the contest. He says, we're going to build altars, and the first God to send fire on your altar is the true God. And he says, you go first. So I'll give you home field advantage. It's 850 to 1, and you start. Right. What's more, he gives them all day to do this. Did you notice this? They're chanting and ranting and raving and cutting themselves. What scripture says from morning to evening. All day. And when they're not listening, Isaiah gets a little sar- Isaiah, excuse me, Elijah gets a little sarcastic. Scream louder, he says. I didn't include every part of the text. But he says maybe your God isn't listening. Maybe he's off somewhere relieving himself. And that means what you think it means. So he's being a little fresh, right? So he gives them all day, home field advantage, 850 to 1. What's the other one? Gives them all day. He lets them go first, but watch this. Now it's his turn. So what does he do? It's his turn. The fire doesn't come for the prophets of Baal, so now it's his turn. When it's his turn, he decides that he is going to douse his sacrifice with an immense amount of water, not once, not twice, but three times. He not only douses it with water, but he decides to dig a little trench around the thing, so that all the water collects in a pool. So it's sitting in a pool of water. You say, you know, Elijah, this is already kind of hard, right? Why are you putting water on it? Don't do that. It's double faith, I think. Faith that God would ignite something so wet, but also consider this, they were in a three-year drought. They needed this water, right? Disciples are not afraid of making matters worse. They're not afraid of jumping into lion's dens or fiery furnaces. God calls us sometimes to do things that are actually impossible to do because when he comes through, the people will know that he is Lord he's got to be. Right? So disciples are troublemakers. They're defenders. They don't waver. They make matters worse, and, and they are rebuilders. They repair. Then Elijah, in verse 30, said to all the people, come here to me, he said. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord. Remember I told you that that Ahab and Jezebel and all the prophets of Baal had destroyed the altars of the Lord, which were meant to make sacrifices to the Lord. But he repairs the altar. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribe, tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. Now this is wonderful and we can't miss this because I think this is significant. He doesn't build a new altar He repairs an old one. And what I think this means is that God has given us a way to follow. And when we neglect it, we don't create new ways. We repair the old one. Right? So he doesn't build a new altar. He took the one that had been destroyed by the prophets of Baal and he rebuilt it. It's as if to say that we need to remember Yahweh. We need to remember what he has told us to do. And what has he told us to do? To preserve his word. To, pervert, to, pre, to preserve his promise. And to remember that if we are going to be reconciled with him, it's got to come by something outside of me, a sacrifice. We're not on the altar. Someone else is we cannot invent another way to rescue ourselves but we need to remember the sacrifice that the lord provides for us to be reconciled with him right so i so elijah takes 12 new stones and each of these as he's rebuilding this this altar represents the 12 tribes of israel as we're told in the text And at the time, if you know anything about Israelite history, these 12 tribes were divided. So Elijah is reminding them that though they are divided, God's people, as God's people, they still remain God's people, and Yahweh is still their God. So in other words, even though we're messed up and dysfunctional, we're living in sin, that God's church is still his people, and that we need to turn back to him as one people, and rebuild the altar, and remember what that means for us as God's people. Oh, how we need to remember as a church the repairs that we need to continually be making in our midst. How we need to remember that we are one in Christ, and that he is Lord, and we are not, and how urgent it is to follow Yahweh Jesus. And and here's, what we get to do in Isaiah 61 to rebuild the ancient ruins and to restore the places long devastated oh friend the devastation that we all experience in our hearts when we forget that the Lord he is God that he gives and he takes away blessed be the name of the Lord you see friends we get grumpy and we get angry at God for maybe taking something from us. Oh, and how I know that at times those things can be hard and heavy heavy, and we should grieve. But sometimes our grief turns into a bitter anger towards the Lord and others. And we forget that he is good and our hearts enter into devastation. Oh, but the good news is that it can be rebuilt again he looks to Israel, Elijah, and he leads them to rebuild their trust in the Lord, to rebuild their trust in his promise, and to rebuild their love for him. Oh, and how, as a church, we need to rebuild the the centrality of the word of God in our lives. We need to rebuild the urgency of prayer. We need to rebuild the priority of holiness and surrender and sacrificing our will for his you see friends the altar is crumbling but it's not too late to rebuild it and as a church as God's people who are his people by grace through faith in Jesus there is no more time to waste we need to rebuild begins here and then here Disciples are troublemakers. They are defenders. They don't waver. They make matters worse. They repair. Oh, and then this one. They trust God for the fire. This is good. Elijah's task isn't to make a very wet pool light on fire. This is not a Boy Scout challenge, right? So he doesn't start thinking like, okay, how can I ignite this thing? This is difficult. Maybe I need some gasoline or a blowtorch or something. He doesn't do this. What he does is he prays. He doesn't cut himself and chant and dance. Because if God is going to act in this world, it's not because of anything we do, but, beca- but, but, but it's because of God's sovereign grace to save us, not by our merits, but by his. So he prays. He builds the altar God brings the fire. He built the altar, and God brings the fire. He couldn't bring the fire. That's God's job. Right? The very simple math that we can do. How is this thing going to light on fire unless God does it? He's got to do it. You see, friends, fire in Scripture symbolizes the presence of God waking people up. Moses sees the fire on the bush, and God speaks to him. And he sees its light, right? Um, The the fiery cloud leads Israel by night. The presence of God. The fire of God's Spirit in the New Testament, remember, fell on the heads of the apostles as tongues of fire. So the, the fire of God's presence... Fire is God's presence here in scripture. It has very much to do with what we might call in church history, revival. Right? Because when God's fire shows up, people start speaking with tongues. They start prophesying. In other words, they come to believe and know that Yahweh is Lord and that Christ is their Savior. You see, the fire has got to come for that to happen and we can chant, and we can rave, and we can cut, and we can spin, and it's not going to make the fire come. God's got to bring the fire. We build the altar. God brings the fire. You see, we can plan, and we can have Easter egg hunts, and we can do concerts, and none of this is going to lead a single soul to faith in Jesus Christ, unless the fire comes from heaven. You see? We can put money behind it. We can have all sorts of creative ideas. None of that will bring anyone to Jesus Christ unless when we do it, the fire shows up. The fire of God's presence. We build the altar and God brings the fire. We cannot manipulate anybody into becoming believers in Jesus Christ. So, okay, what do we do? What's this mean? How do we build the altar? Well, what did Elijah do? He prayed. He said, God, I got something wet over here, something impossible, something lifeless, something dead, and if it's going to happen, you've got to do it. So would you come? And he did. Elijah prayed, and the fire fell. Friends, there is a principle in Scripture. I don't want to oversimplify it. It's not just prayer. It's the, uh, God's holy people consecrated to his service when, they, when, when God's people, as a holy people, come to him in prayer, God's fire comes. If that's true, if that's how we see God doing wonders in the world around us, why don't we pray? You see, I said this last week. I think sometimes it's because we don't believe what we say we believe. We don't really believe it. That when we can, we can like all like little Elijahs, come together and ask God for miracles and that he'll do them, we don't really believe it. Elijah prayed and the fire fell. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Isn't that nice? And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The fire came, the people of Israel repented. See? This fire shows up and it's thirsty. (laughs) Right? It takes the sacrifice that Elijah had cut up. It takes the wood around it. It burns up, this is the language of scripture, it burns up the stones and the soil. You ever try to burn a rock? It's pretty hard. That fire needs to be very hot. And as if it's just still hungry and hasn't had enough of soil and of rocks, it licks up all the water in the trench around it. You see, friends, God bringing the fire to that sacrifice is more than just a miracle. It's more than just proving that Yahweh is God and Baal isn't. You see, it's more than just a miracle. It's more than just proving who the real God is. It symbolizes how we can be reconciled to him. You see, because all of Israel had sinned against God and they were out of fellowship with him. And he said, if you wanna have fellowship with me, you need a sacrifice that I'll accept. And that day, God accepted that sacrifice on that altar. The sacrifice that he accepts for us is only one, and it is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we come to him by faith, the fire of God's presence burns up that sacrifice. It licks up our sin and our past. You see, all the rocks and stones and water and all the all the villainous, criminal-like behavior that we've had, the ways that we've hurt others and sinned against each other and ourselves and God, it all gets licked up and is satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, so this isn't just a nice miracle. This isn't just prove that God is better than Baal. It shows us, it points the way for us to have real-life forgiveness and reconciliation with God in Christ. You see, because that sacrifice, that bull that day pointed to the better one, Jesus Christ, who was lifted on a cross, who became our curse for us, resurrected out of the tomb and never lives to make intercession at the right hand of God for us and our behalf. Isn't that great news? Oh, it's so much better than a cute boy that likes you, right? So we can say no to that cute boy that likes us because God tells me to not un- be unequally yoked, right? And, and we can trust him because we got a better boy that likes us, right, in heaven, our, our heavenly father and his son Jesus Christ, the better bridegroom. Oh, friend, we listen to him not because we're trying to, we're, we're trying to impress him, but because he's better. He's got a better plan for us, and that's why we follow him. Friends, we are called not to waver, but to follow Jesus, and Israel's response is remarkable at this. When, when you remember this like little sermon that, he, 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 that Elijah preaches, how long will you waver? You know what they do? The people said nothing. Hmm, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, right? They were quiet. They weren't maybe even yet convinced about Elijah's talk. And this is true today, friends. My preaching will do nothing to the hearts of lost people unless the fire of God's presence false. See? God's, God has to do it. God has to come. He can, will, and wants to do this in our world. Friends, we need to follow the Lord. He has called us to be disciples of Jesus Christ, servants of the Most High God. And what does that mean? It means that sometimes we're troublemakers, that we defend the Lord and others around us; that we don't waver between two opinions. We make matters work and worse, and we trust God in faith. We rebuild the altar of His word, of prayer, of holiness, and then we trust God in the midst of this, in the midst of all this, to show up and work wonders. Amen. So repair the altar, friends. We can, we can continue serving our false gods. Remember what their response was after they were done cutting themselves? There was none. There's no, no one answered. No one paid attention. Oh, and that is the sad story of our lives when we begin to love and trust this world over the Lord. It gives us no response, no answer, no help. But when we call on the name of the Lord, he comes. He shows up. Friends, our name is Israel. God's people. And you know what God's people are? They're firewalkers, They're defenders, miracle workers, repairers. And they bind up broken hearts. That's our job. That's what God's called us to as disciples of Jesus Christ. So we need to repair the altar and pray. The only, the one and only God, we are his servants. So we need to pray with Elijah, that same prayer that he prayed. Would you pray with me? God, I pray this morning that these people will know that you are Lord and that you are turning their hearts back again. Oh God, some of us in this room, our hearts have been far from you for so long. We haven't believed you. We haven't trusted you. We go our own way and trust our own hearts and it's deceived us time and time again. It has not answered us. It has not paid attention to us. So God I pray Lord that we would know that you alone are Lord. God I pray Lord that our hearts would turn back to you. And that we would see the response in this church, churches in churches around us and in our communities that we would fall prostrate and cry the Lord he is God. The Lord he is God. And then it rained. God, thank you, Lord, for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that you are Lord alone and that Jesus bids us to follow him. Help us now to do this as your people in your church. Thank you that you are gracious when we are slow to learn and that we are stubborn and we have hard hearts. God, thank you for your grace and your love and that you're turning us back to yourself. God, bless us now. Bless the remainder of our service. In Jesus' name, amen.